Let's turn to Titus chapter 1. Stand if you're able for the reading of God's holy word. Beginning in Titus chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a servant or slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, that is, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now the focus for today beginning in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer... Different term, but same office as elder. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But, implied, he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, we have not opened this morning just any book. And we do not see this book as Muslims see the Quran or Mormons see the Book of Mormon or Jehovah's Witnesses see the New World Bible. We see this book as your inerrant infallible and fully trustworthy and sufficient word that you gave us through your spirit, inspiring by your spirit every word, using people without violating their personalities, whom you chose and called to write your word in various kinds of ways. Some were poets, and they wrote poetry. Some were historians, and they wrote history. Others were called to give us accounts of 
the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Some were apostles like Paul and Peter, and they would write for us your word in the context of their circumstances, but what that word was as given by you and is as given by you is not temporal truth just for that time and day, but eternal truth for all time and every day. This is your word. It is for your people. And it is your people indwelt by your Holy Spirit who alone can understand your word and thus apply your word to our lives. Your word is truth. It is absolute truth. Where your word speaks, you speak. This is not a word about you. This is a word from you. This is a word, at least as we come to this portion of your word today, this is a word about your church. And it's particularly about those who lead in your church. This is a word that does not stutter. It does not stammer. There is no confusion, nor should there be about this word. It is clear. So God, O Lord God Almighty, help us today to bring us together under the authority of your word and help me in the way I pray you would choose to help me in these moments to speak your word with clarity, and with the conviction that comes knowing that this is your sacred and holy truth. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The church... The universal church, the church throughout the world, and the church throughout the world only exists in particular people in particular places, or what we call the local church. Someone can say, I belong to the universal church. Well, the follow-up question is, to which local church do you belong? Because the universal church has no meaning and no existence apart from each and every local church to which we commit our lives through membership as members of local bodies of Christ. The church belongs to Jesus. Paul puts it this way when he speaks of the church belonging to Jesus because Jesus is the only one in the entire universe who has paid the price that was required to be paid so that the church could be purchased for God. Paul uses these words, painting the church in the colors of the imagery of a bride in relationship to her bridegroom. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, quote, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. This is very precise This is very particular. This is very specific. God sent Jesus into the world. Jesus was sent to the cross by God to fulfill the plans and purposes of God to purchase for God a people for himself that Paul calls 
the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That is, make her holy, make the local church everything that God wants her to be. How does he do that? By the washing of water with the word. This is how God cleanses his church. This is how God purifies his church. This is how God perfects his church. He washes her week after week after week through the proper preaching and teaching of the word of God. And during the week, as believers in our quiet times come under the authority of the word of God and listen and learn and love the word of God so that we can grow in the grace and knowledge of God so that one day, Paul says, Jesus will present the church to himself. And that church will be perfect. That church will be pure. That church will be spotless. It will be blameless. It will be the perfection of everything that God is doing even now on this day to purify and perfect the church. Now, if that mission is going to be accomplished, and it will be accomplished because it is the mission of God during this time to purchase, to perfect, to purify a church for himself, then the Bible is not going to leave us to the decision about how the church is to operate. Again, let me say the church is not our church. The church is not the pastor's church. The church belongs to Jesus. And Jesus, through the spirit of Jesus, has made it very plain in the book about how the church is to operate and what is to be the foundational focus for the life of the church. We called it in the sermon two weeks ago, the biblical pattern for the church. So let me just spend a few moments at the beginning of the sermon this morning revisiting verses 1 through 4 so that we can have our memories refreshed about what is, according to the Word of God, the biblical pattern of the church. First and foremost, the priority of any local church is the worship of God. And every local church is commanded by God to gather on the Lord's day to worship God. The most important day of the week for a believer is the Lord's day. And we know that the Lord's day is Sunday because every Sunday we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And every Lord's Day, the church is compelled to come together, called to come together. It is one of the clear ways that we witness that we belong to God and we do not belong to the world. It is one of the ways that we communicate that we're committed to the absolute authority of God in our lives. So we gather to worship God and the centrality of our worship is the listening to, hearing of, and preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Every service of worship should have at its center someone standing before the people, opening the book, explaining the book, and helping the people apply the book to their lives. The church gathers for worship, and worship is for the people of God. That's what Paul says here. Paul, a servant of God, verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he says that he is writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect, God's people chosen 
by God from before the foundation of the world for their faith, for their growth in faith, for their advance in faith, for their maturing in faith. Well, how do they do that? How do we grow in faith, Paul? How do we mature in faith? How do we advance in faith? Paul says we do that through the knowledge of the truth. We must know the truth and we must learn the truth so that we can love the truth and live the truth. And as we grow in the truth of God, we grow in godliness. Look at what he says in verse 1. Their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So it leads us to live in the hope of eternal life. God living in us by the power of his spirit. And as he lives in us by the power of his spirit, which is eternal life, we receive the promises of God and we find the promises of God precious and we find the promises of God being fulfilled in us because we are being taught the word of God. We love the word of God. We are committed to the truth of God. And that comes to us, as Paul says in verse 3, And at the proper time, manifest in his word through the preaching. Now, Paul has been entrusted with this word, preaching. And Paul is entrusting this word of preaching to others, to Timothy, to Titus here. Because the center of the life of the church is Godly men holding the word of God, handling the word of God, preaching and teaching the word of God. Denny Burke, who has preached here in this church, professor of New Testament at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, has written a wonderful commentary on Titus. And in that commentary, he says that what Paul does as an apostle in planting churches. And that's what Paul did. Paul was a church planter. And wherever Paul went to plant churches, he always did three things. And he just repeated this over and over and over again. The first thing he did was evangelism. He would go into a community where there was no church. He would go to the synagogue and he would preach Jesus. On Monday, he would go into the marketplace. Or we would say he would go downtown Waynesboro. Or he would go to the Walmart shopping Uh, lot. He would go to the Walmart parking lot and there he would meet people, greet people, and he wasn't interested in developing a relationship with them so he could get to know them so they would accept his word. He was interested in preaching the gospel. So Paul would just tell people about Jesus, tell people what God had done in Jesus to save them. He would call them to repentance and faith. People would be saved He would take those people and either one-on-one or in small groups, he would disciple them. He would teach them the truth of God. He would watch them grow in the grace of God. And then he would equip some of them to teach others. Those whom he equipped would teach others until a group had been gathered that was large enough to constitute a church. And here's the third thing Paul would do. He would establish that church and the first thing he would do was to put elders in place as spiritual leaders of the church. He did that over and over and over again because Paul knew that there cannot be a church where the church is not made up of people 
who are truly saved. The church consists of people who really know Jesus as Lord and are seeking to serve Jesus as Lord. And among those people that are living under the lordship of Jesus are men to whom God has given the gift of leadership through their growing knowledge of the word of God and in their growing knowledge of the word of God, they are being equipped by the spirit of God to lead the church. This is the pattern for any church. There is no other pattern. This is God's proclamation of God's way for God's people, for God's people to be his church. And God not only has a pattern for his church, more precisely and particularly, God has a pattern for leadership in his church. And he makes it very clear. You have a church with the wrong kind of leadership. And sooner than later, you will not have a church. You will have a religious institution. You will have a group of people who gather together to participate in activities and programs, but you won't have a church. Because the only way to have a church, duly constituted church, is to put yourself under the authority of God's word and say, God never lies. God never lies and his word is pure and his word is true and we will not, we will not compromise it. Something had happened in Crete. We don't know what happened in Crete, but something happened in Crete so that the church there, there was a church there, and it had dwindled down to nothing. So Paul says to Titus, verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained, the phrase here, what remained, is a word that suggests that what remains is little or nothing, that this church is hanging by a thread, that it's like this church is on a cliff, and it's halfway off the cliff, and Just a few more days or months, the church is going to plunge into oblivion. That you might put what remained into order. This phrase, into order, is Paul using a word that's used nowhere else in the Bible. It is a word that at its root has the word from which we get the word orthopedics. Bone structure, the bones, the skeletal structure of our body. You know, you can have a body, can't you, that on the outside everything looks great. But you can have underneath the skin a knee that's going bad or a hip that's going bad or some other part of your skeletal structure and nobody can see it. But it's there and you know it. And you feel it. Well, that's the word that's used here. Something's wrong with the skeletal structure of the church. Uh, The very bones of the body are fractured. How did the church get this way? 
uh, this church in Crete, how were they at one time a thriving, productive, growing? And now they're at the brink of ruin. Maybe it would help to know a little bit about Crete. Crete during this time was the home of the worship of the pagan god Zeus. In the pantheon of the Greek and Roman gods, this god was among the most powerful. And these people on Crete were pagan people. They worshiped this god. They also were known for having throughout the island these statues everywhere of a half bull, half man. And that half bull, half man statue that was scattered throughout the island of Crete. Archaeologists have discovered them there through the remains that are left behind. These, these statues represented power. So these people on Crete were pagan people who worshipped at the altar of power, but they were the leading people in the Roman Empire who worshipped the emperor of Rome. They found their hope in the rulers of Rome. They were very politically motivated, so they bowed their knees at the altar of the Roman Caesar. They were pagan. They were pursuing power. They were pursuing their needs through political rulers. They were far removed from God. And maybe the church in Crete said, this teaching about preaching and teaching the word of God at the center of the church will not produce change. This place is tough. This place is a place where people are far removed from God. We need something different. Recently, researchers published a report about many of the failures of the modern American church. And they nailed those failures to three things. Number one, the American church is absolutely in love with the church growth movement, so all we care about is external numbers. The American church is so structured, we will do anything to get people in the pews. We will try anything. We will compromise anywhere we need to compromise. Number two, the American church is enamored with Hollywood. So... We are more drawn to entertainment than we are edification. We want people to come to church and leave feeling happy, happy about themselves, feeling good about themselves, and not exhorted, not confronted. Number three, the American church has been strongly influenced in the last 10 years by the advertising industry. Every church thinks that we have to brand ourselves. Now, I get information about that all the time, that, that this person says, I, my group that I lead will come and help you discover what would be your brand, how you would brand yourself in Waynesboro, Georgia. 
That's where we've gone wrong. We've forgotten that we're not of the world, we're not from the world, we're not about the world, we're not influenced by the world. We are the people of God. And in order to be the people of God, we have to follow the Word of God. For the pattern of the church and for the pattern of leadership. Well, Paul sets before us here in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, the pattern of leadership for the church. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul is the pastoral authority over this church, and in order for this to be the church, he is not to be the autocratic dictator, but he is to direct according to the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, how the church is to operate. And he says to Titus, in every town on the island of Crete where there is a church, in that church you find godly men who meet the requirement for elders and you appoint elders in the church so that we can begin to put the church in order. Now, before we talk about these things, there are two very foundational facts that I need to remind you of. Number one, the office of elder is not new. I think there are some Baptists that think this church has had elders now for 15, 20 years and we went to this new thing. No, 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 no. We went back over... 4,000 years. The office of elder is found in Exodus 18 and Deuteronomy 5. It's found throughout the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament and you will find that the church from her very beginning was led by a group of godly men known as elders. Now, The word elder has to do with office. There are two offices in the New Testament church, only two. Elder, deacon. That's it. Now, how does an elder, elder? How does an elder do what an elder is called to do? Well, the Bible's clear. There are two functions given to the office of elder. One of them is to oversee. You see this in verse 7. An overseer. That's not an office. It's often translated bishop. But it's not an office. There is no office of bishop in the Bible. It's a function. What is an elder to do? He is to oversee the local church where he serves to make sure that that local church is living in such a way that we're conforming to what is clearly communicated in Scripture. The other word is 
the word for shepherd. It is a word that's often translated pastor. But it means shepherd. So what's an elder to do? He is to oversee the congregation as a shepherd. He is to care for the sheep. He is to love the sheep. He is to minister to the sheep. His office is elder. His function is oversight, shepherding. Now, historically, from the first century church through the 19th century, the only offices known in the church were elder and deacon. In the middle of the 19th century, Did you know Baptist, historically, Baptist started in the 17th century. Southern Baptist started in the 19th century. But from the 17th century to the middle of the 19th century, Baptist churches predominantly were led by elders. It all changed in the middle of the 19th century. And it didn't change for biblical reasons. It did not change for good reasons. It did not change for health-producing reasons. It is a part of our history about which we ought to be embarrassed, if not ashamed. When the Southern Baptist Convention started in 1840, it was 1845 in Augusta, Georgia, it was led by very, very politically powerful men. And they not only wanted their way in the emerging Southern Baptist Convention, they wanted their way in local church after local church after local church, and they couldn't get it because they couldn't get past the elders who were protecting the sheep. So because of their political prowess and through their political shenanigans, these men brought to pass by 1925, from 1845 to 1925, the obliteration of elders from almost all Southern Baptist churches. And it remained that way until the 1980s. This is why I have great hope for our churches. In the 1980s, God began to raise up a generation of young men who took seriously that this is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. And they began to go to churches and do the hard work that was necessary to return biblical order to Baptist churches so that we would live in conformity to Scripture. Do you know know that today throughout the Southern Baptist Convention, We have churches that were ready to close their doors. They were done. And our North American Mission Board came into those churches and they said, would you allow us to bring a young man into your church to lead the way and he is going to lead the way by restoring biblical order to your church. They signed a covenant agreement. This is happening all over our country. And those young men came into those churches And they began to pray, they began to preach the Word of God expositionally, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Men began to be raised up who were appointed as elders, and some of those churches, ready to close their doors, are now thriving churches. What happened? 
you can't go against the Word of God as a church, even in the way you're ordered, and expect God to continue to bless your church. He just won't. But in order for the church to be blessed, it's not about having elders or having deacons. It's about having the right men who are the leaders of the church. And the office of elder, those men who serve as those who oversee the church and those who shepherd the church, those men, the Bible says, are to be possessed by certain character traits. Now, it is clear in the Bible that the office of elder, I didn't know until this week in Anaheim that Southern Baptists were confused about this. I thought we were clear about this, but we're not. The office of elder or the office of pastor, biblically, I want to say this as plainly as I can say it, is for men only. There is no such thing as women pastors. You go to a church with a woman as a pastor, then you better next Sunday go to a different church because that church is totally out of order. God gives to men leadership in the office of elder a pastor. The office is elder. The function is pastor or pastoral. So what kind of man can occupy the office? I want you to look at the text with me. I want you to hear what Paul says. But before I do that, I want all of us to hear this together. Kent Hughes, who has been a pastor for many, many years and served in the city of Chicago for many years, wrote recently that as he's mentoring young pastors, the question he hears over and over again, the concern he hears over and over again from young men is the concern that in their churches where they serve, the members of the church's lives are a sinful mess. But you know what is more disturbing? You and I live in a culture where men in the pulpit, men who serve as elders and deacons, our lives are a sinful mess too. And somehow we have learned to hide behind Romans 7. I don't do the things that I should do and the things I shouldn't do I find myself doing and we say that's okay. It's not okay. No man who serves as a pastor or an elder or a deacon is perfect. No man who serves as a pastor or elder or a deacon is pure. But every man who stands behind this pulpit or every man who serves as an elder or deacon ought to be pursuing passionately the purity or the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. We are a mess. So when we lay out these qualifications, there are going to be elders in this church who serve as elders. There are going to be deacons in this church 
who serve as deacons, there's going to be a pastor, an associate pastor, an associate pastor for students and families that are going to say, wow. And there could be some of you who say, I knew it. We've got a mess of people as elders and deacons. Listen to what Paul says in the context of the greatness of the grace and mercy of God to us. Who's who's qualified to occupy the office, Paul tells us. Verse 6, if anyone is above reproach, that's the qualification that is the first foundational qualification for elders, deacons, both in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3. It means to be a man of integrity. It means the people in your church, when they look at you, they cannot doubt, will not doubt your devotion to Jesus as Lord. You are a sinner. They know you make mistakes. They know that you don't always live as faithfully as you would even desire to live, but they know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love Jesus. Your integrity is clear. You should be the husband. If you're going to hold this office, pastor, elder, you should be the husband of one wife. Your children should be believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That is, you're living in your home in such a way that you're leading your home spiritually. This should be clear for every elder and deacon. You are the spiritual leader in your home. You love your wife. You care for your family. You communicate the truth of God to your family. You teach them the truth of God. You live before them the truth of God. Your family knows that you love Jesus. That is so, so very important. We just employed a wonderful young man as associate pastor for students and families here, Lucas and Caitlin. I want to ask you as a church family, particularly our men, I want to ask you to do something for me. I can tell you I'm at the end of 50-plus years of pastoral ministry. I can tell you at the end of 50 years, I will not say, I cannot say, I wished I had spent less time with my family. I grew up in pastoral ministry during a time when pastors were awarded for being workaholics, when we were awarded for spending more time at the church than we spent anywhere. I grew up in that season. In fact, when Haley and Jonathan were children, on Christmas Day, I would often go missing, and they would look at each other and say, they didn't tell me this two years later, we know where he is. He's at the church. They were right. Christmas Day. That's idolatry. So here, guys, is what I want you to do. I want you from time to time to go to Lucas and say, when have you taken Caitlin on a date? Make him answer. Well, it's been three weeks. Reach in your wallet. Say, here's 20, take her to McDonald's. (laughs) Make sure that he makes being a faithful husband 
and Father a priority. And when Jack meets the next baby, I guess, Jill, then Jill meets Joe, and Joe meets Jane, and Jane meets, stop it! Go to him and say, uh, hey, we'll take your kids for tonight. Y'all go spend time together. He's not a disrag to do for us everything we want done for our kids. He's a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we ought to make sure that he loves his family well. Because if he loves his family well, he will love his church well. That's the office of the elder. What about the function? Do this quick. Paul says, he must not, verse 7, for an overseer, that's function, one who gives oversight, as God's steward. He's managing, he's managing the church of God. It's not his church, he's managing it alongside other elders. He must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. This is way beyond pride. Arrogance is I want what I want, and I want it now, and I'll do anything to get it because I want to know and control everything, which leads to the second thing. Such a man is quick-tempered. He has a hair-trigger temper. He will go off explosively about anything and go off extensively about everything. Now, I want to say something here because it's very important. A man cannot serve as an elder who lives in a way that this is his persistent pattern. This is the way he operates day to day and week to week and week to month to month unceasingly. I grew up in a horrible home. And I learned how to get my way. I learned to get my way when I was abused by my mother. I learned that if I just screamed and hollered and shouted... And acted, frankly, like a maniac. I could get whatever I wanted. Then God called me to be a pastor of a Baptist church. And in my first couple of churches, I learned that to get my way, and I wanted my way, all I had to do was the same thing. Just holler at the deacons. And shout at them and tell them this is the way it's going to be. I'm the pastor here. That is vile sin. And God convicted me. I did that with Ann. I was a good screamer. But I was a gross sinner. And God convicted me. And through the years, still working on me, bringing me increasingly to that place of increasingly, I pray, humility before God. Oh, you may have had moments in your life when you were acting arrogantly and explosive in your temper. But you know it's a sin, both of those together. And you have repented before God and repented for those you harmed. 
If not, I can tell you where it leads. It leads to you being controlled by outside forces in your life. A drunkard controlled by outside substances, outside forces, or violent. This ha- the word really means to engage in a fist fight. You, you want what you want and you will fight for it and you will fight violently to get it because you're greedy for gain. Not just money, but you want power, you want control, you, you want your way. No man who acts this way persistently can serve in this office and serve this function. So who do you have to be? Verse 8. You have to be hospitable. It means you love strangers. It means you love evangelism. You see lost people, you run to them. You love what is good. The word good here means what belongs to God. You love the things of God. You love the word of God. You love the truth of God. You love the worship of God. You're self-controlled. There are times when you just bite your tongue. There are times when you bite your tongue so much your tongue hurts. You're upright. The word upright here means that you treat people fairly. You don't see people based on who they are, where they live, or what they do in the community. You see all people the same way. The word holy here is a unique word. It means morally upright. No doubt about your moral character and your discipline. Your discipline in the word of God and the way of God. This is who an elder is. This is who a spiritual leader in the church is. And it has to be this way because Paul says, listen, he says, this is what the elder does. This is what the pastor does. We hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught. We are fastened fully to the word of God so that we can instruct the church in the truth of God And when there are those who contradict the word of God, and in every church there will be, we can rebuke them in the way they need to be rebuked so we can keep the church focused on being faithful to the word of God. Maybe I've missed something along the way. But I want to end with two things. I read what Paul says. This is absolute truth. This is pure truth. This is true truth. And I ask myself, as I'm asking men in this room, where are these men in our churches in our day? Where are they? I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the men in this church. I praise God for you. But... Where are these kind of men that if I run across you tomorrow somewhere, we can talk about the Word of God together because we love it more than anything else. We can talk about the truth of Jesus together because this is our passion. I don't know what your answer will be to that question, where are they? Here mine. This is what I think. I think for most of us men, us men, The world is too much with us, and we're too much in the world and of the world, and we don't want to let it go because we love the things of the world. And the more we love the things of the world, 
the less we will be desperate for Jesus. The church in America needs a move of God that will take away from us almost everything. Until we are left at the place where we are desperate for Jesus. Secondly, you know where elders and deacons come from? They come from families. You want to see a man who's qualified to be an elder or a deacon? Go to his home. Look at how he loves his wife. Look at how he leads his children. Because it starts there. And it ends there. This is the solid foundation that Paul has set for the church. Violate it to our demise, if not our death. This is God's word, and this is God's way for the people of God to be God's church. Father, we bless your name for your word. And we pray your blessings on this church. I'm grateful for the men in this church, the leadership of the men in this church, and I pray that you would continue to raise up in this place godly men, that we'll look at the world and say we have no interest. We are desperate for Jesus. In his name, amen.